Good morning. Almighty, eternal God, we lift our hearts and bow them before thy majesty and thy holiness. So thankful for thy well-beloved son who paid our debt of sin. And our Father, we confess that we're a needy people because we've been careless about our commitment to thee, but you've committed yourself to us without reservation. O our Father, as thy word goes forth, speak to each one of our hearts. Oh, we love thee, but we want to serve thee to count for thy eternal kingdom, and that can only be when our hearts are truly committed to thee. May your word go forth, the anointing power of your blessed Holy Spirit. In Jesus' precious name, amen. The last time I was with you, I brought a message <clears throat> from Matthew chapter 11, 28 to 30. And it was about learning that imitates Christ. This morning, I would like to bring a similar message in that vein. Commitment that imitates Christ. What is commitment? Funk and Wagnall's new comprehensive international dictionary used these descriptive words to denote, to devote, to pledge, to consign, bind, that is, to entrust oneself to be used of another for the purpose to which he commits himself. We have no trouble understanding commitment as it relates to everyday issues of life. Take when one lists in one of the branches of the military. They take an oath of commitment to the defense of our country. Even it means the sacrifice of one's life. And that was my personal experience on December 24th, 1950. When two people fall in love, and if the man wants to show his commitment to the relationship, he shows it by giving to her an engagement ring. She then commits herself to the man by accepting it and wearing it. Then when the marriage takes place, there's a commitment to each other, which vow they take, that is, before man and before God. The commitment till death do us part. To show the insincerity with which over 50% of professing Christians make this vow of commitment to each other in the day in which we now live, over 50% of these marriages end in divorce. Earlier this week, I think it was on Tuesday, a dear lady came to see me. She was at our wedding. Daisy and I were at her wedding. And she and her husband we're at Daisy's memorial service, and I was so saddened that last year he divorced her for another woman, and they're both professing Christians. Yes, that made me sad. 
I would like also to say this is true in the spiritual realm. Professions of faith are made to divine bridegroom, but with many there is no commitment to him. And for many to carry out the demands of his glorious gospel, let somebody else do it. But we're all committed to give out the gospel if we've been born of a spirit like Brother Rich referred to. In the matter of employment, a person who, when hired, may not necessarily like the person who employed them, but this person knows that if the business where they work is successful, their employment is more secure. So, to that end, they commit themselves. And... We've all had to spend time relating to favorable and unfavorable experiences we had when we go into businesses or deal with people that labor in the business. I don't have to spend time that, but we can remember good and bad. In the realm of sports, in the Olympics, if you've ever followed the Olympic Games, you know these athletes subject themselves to very rigorous physical discipline, which takes real commitment. The Apostle Paul lured this sport when he said in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, a perishable prize, and in the limits they desire to win a medal to honor their country, but that's not necessarily so for everyone who participates. Earlier this week, a dear brother in the Lord called me to tell me something that he saw on television that just blessed his heart. He saw a replay of the Olympics. The Nigeria never produced a person that could win a medal. But in this 400-meter relay, they evidently subjected themselves to such discipline and were so committed that they won it on the 400-meter relay. And the anchor won who crossed the finish line, meaning they won. She stood up and wasn't about the nation. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Again and again and again. So you have to think that those Nigerian athletes did it for the Lord. By the way, there's no country suffering persecution like Nigeria. Thousands and thousands have been slaughtered by Boko Haram and Fulani. Excuse me. One more illustration. Being raised on the farm, I know what it meant to be committed to the work ethic. Not only that, but a farm boy would be committed to the best care of the livestock, be it Cows, which we had, steers upon which we had, and also the soil, because committed to the care of the soil, from the soil we get food to eat, but we also get food to sell. That was our livelihood. And one more, Philip Keller, who was once in the business of raising sheep, wrote the book, A Shepherd's View, the 23rd Psalm. He likened the care of his sheep to the committed care of the sheep of God, by the good 
And the great shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ, expressed so well in Psalm 23. Think of his intimate, committed care for all that he died for. Hebrews 12, 2 says this. Looking upon to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set up on the right hand of the Father on high for what purpose? To build his church and to watch over his sheep. He is committed to each one of his children. Are we truly committed to him? Our text is 1 Peter chapter 2, 18 to 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not. But he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, whose own self bear our sins in his own body upon that cursed tree, <clears throat> that we should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were sheep going astray, but now are you turned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. As we read that text, one thing becomes very clear. Commitment to the Lord is far different than some evangelists and preachers expound. Do you think Joe Osteen and his entourage, who were at Yankee Stadium this past week, and others like his ilk, would have a great following if they were honest and declared what it really means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? How many times in the Bible do you hear Paul, the Lord saying to Simon and Andrew, to James and John, to Levi, follow me. Not accept me, follow me. Or then again, in Matthew 16, 24, if you want to be my disciple, then follow me and take up your, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. John 12, 26, if any man will serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall he be also. And the Father will honor him. Matthew 10, 37, 38, 39. If any man love father and mother more than me, he is not worthy of me. If any man loves son and daughter more than me, he is not worthy of me. If any man will not take up his cross and follow me, he is not worthy of me. Then Luke 14, 33. The Lord had just gave a comparison of two armies. One small, then the other and the only way for peace, the smaller army found out, was to surrender to the greater army. In that same vein, he says, he will not forsake all that he hath, cannot be my disciple. In Luke 9, 51, 59, where it gives an account of three men that came up and said, I'll follow you. 
And the last one says, I'll follow you, but first I want to go back home and do some business. And Jesus said, he that put his hand to the pal and, and looketh back is not fit for the kingdom of God. And then John 21, 21 and 22, the Lord had just told Peter about what, how he would honor him in his death, crucifixion. As they're walking away, Peter looked back and saw, Joe, what about that man? The Lord said, that's none of your business. Follow me. But then the blessing. John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The word commit or the or formal words only used one time in our text, but it's enough upon which to build this sermon. The word in our text is a Greek word, paradidonai. Listen to all its varied meanings. It means to surrender, to yield up, to instruct, to betray, to cast, to deliver up, give over, to hazard. Each of these expressions, <coughs> pardon me, each of these expressions use the same Greek word, paradidonai. To drive home this word, commit, I will address a few of these expressions. Take the word betray. It's used some 40 times in Scripture, and all referring to Judas' betrayal of Christ. And I thought, why would the word betray have that same Greek word? And then as I thought about it, it occurred to me that for Judas to betray Jesus Christ, like he did for 30 pieces of silver, his whole person had to be committed to do that evil deed. Acts 15, when the leadership of the infant church gathered over his dispute about circumcision being necessary to be included when preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul's message, <clears throat> which our church still preaches today, salvation is through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And so, the apostle, uh, the uh, leader of the church, James, he stood up to defend the apostle uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas. And he said, these men have hazarded, the same word, their lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. Did not our Lord say in uh, Mark 8.35, he that would save his life shall lose it, and he will save his life for my sake shall find it. Didn't he say that? In other words, we are expendable. And the more we are expendable, the more freer we are, and the more we delight in our Lord Jesus, the more we enjoy him. After Paul and Barnabas finished their first missionary journey, they returned to Antioch where they had been recommended by the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. That same word recommended is paradidonai. Why that? Because God committed him, Paul and Barnabas to that missionary trip, and they fulfilled that commitment. In Matthew 4, 12, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee, cast into prison, paradidonai. Same Greek word. In Acts 21, 11, after the apostle Paul's last missionary journey, he stopped for some time at the home of Philip the Evangelist. The prophet Agabus stopped by taking Paul's girdle and said, The Druze in Jerusalem shall bind the man that owns this girdle and deliver him. The same Greek word, deliver him, into the hands of the Gentiles. 
All these words that come under the Greek word paradidonai are to drive home the meaning of the word committed in verse 23 and is a thrust to follow his steps in verse 21. Before going on to the example of Christ, exemplified in his commitment to the Father and to those the Father gave to him, I would like to illustrate how all these descriptive words, under the Greek word paradidonai, are played out through the infant church. After life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus, there were only 120 disciples that had not followed the mass exodus that occurred when the Lord was apprehended by the civil and religious authorities that came about by Judas' betrayal. The mock trials that followed, which led to physical suffering, that defies human sensibility. Can you imagine they beat our Lord so hard, so viciously, that his face was marred more than any other man? Isaiah 52, 14. And after the crucifixion on the Roman cross where he bore our sins, his own body upon that accursed tree, death could not hold him. When he tramped over death, over political power, ecclesiastic power, over the kingdoms of darkness and all its powers, and from that small beginning, after Pentecost, when the blessed Holy Spirit, promised by the Lord of glory in his upper room discourse, descended and indwelled each believer, and though few in number, and living at a time of world domination by the Roman Empire, declared their Caesar to be God, with a death penalty determined upon all who would not pay homage to Caesar. In a few years from such a small beginning of 120, they were accused of turning the world upside down. What an example of true commitment. These disciples were of flesh and blood just like you and I. No, it was not done in their own ability, but because they had committed themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, their lives typified by Acts 1.8. What does Acts 1.8 says? Stay here in Jerusalem until you're dude with powerful and high. And then you shall be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other parts of the world. What's he communicating to that early church? And what's he communicating to you and I? That we're to be his witnesses at home. That we're to be his witnesses in the neighborhood. We're to be his witnesses where people don't like us. And we're to be his witnesses wherever we go. Completely committed to giving out the message of redeeming love. They were persecuted everywhere they went, but they preached the word of this blessed gospel. The Holy Spirit did the work through them and is still happening today. Not in our own country, but in many countries where they are hearing the gospel for the first time, and there is a great harvest of souls being brought in to the divine sheepfold. The apostle Peter's first epistle about suffering. The believers at one time resided in Judea, but were now scattered over Asia Minor. But look what he wrote to them. That the trial of your faith being more precious than the gold that perished, though it be tried with fire, may be found to praise honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. And though you see him not, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. The 
The first three verses of our text speak of how God's children are to serve those who have the rule over them, which is brought out very clearly in Ephesians 6, 5 to 7. Then in verse 20, there's instruction on suffering. If you deserve it, take it patiently. If you suffer wrongfully, still take it patiently, for this is acceptable to God. When Christ came to earth, yes, it was to reveal the Father, the invisible God, but it was also to raise up a new kind of people, a spiritual race that would imitate him, rescued from the kingdom of darkness, and I can prove it by Titus 2, 12 to 14. The God of grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching that we should live, that we should deny ungodliness and worldliness, but that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify, now notice, purify unto himself a people for his own possession. He came to raise up a new kind of people, a spiritual people. The last five verses speak of the sufferings of Christ as a new race of people to imitate him, which means to follow him. And that can only be possible when one is committed to him who suffered for our sins, who suffered eternal judgment in our place. And dear ones, I'm a very old man now. But the older I get, the more I am touched, my heart is touched by what Jesus did for this old sinner. And when your heart is touched by what he did, by taking upon himself flesh and blood like you and I, so he could suffer eternal judgment in our place, how cannot you love him with all your heart and commit yourself to him 100%? Our Lord Jesus, right from the very beginning, made it very clear what it would be to follow him. He did not say that it would be a, a, an easy road to Zion. He said, and I can prove to you what he, he did not listen to these words from uh, what he told, what he was doing. He made it very plain that his people would suffer. Listen to what it says in Philippians. Paul was writing to the church of Philippi. He said these words. He said, do not be troubled at your adversary, which of them is an evident token of perdition. But rejoice that you have salvation and that from God. For unto you it's been given, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Having the same conflict which you saw in me when I came to uh, Philippi uh, on my first missionary journey, and now you know the conflict that's upon me now in Rome. That made it very clear that there will be conflict. But I would like to just say this again and again, that to follow our blessed Lord, like it says in verse 20, it's verse 21, 
We're here, even here in two, where you called, because Christ all suffered for us, leading us an example that we should follow his steps. We can never follow any steps, but we're to follow his steps, which means that we're to be committed to him. And the only way we're going to be committed to him that we understand the meaning of the word self-denial. That's a, that's the very first thing he said. Uh, Luke 9, 23. You want to be my disciple? Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Because if you will not deny yourself, then you'll not be a godly man. The Bible says, they that would be godly shall suffer persecution in Christ Jesus. And you can't be godly unless you deny yourself. Now, we want to look at the steps that we're to follow. One, commitment to God's word which reflects God's will. Think how he committed himself to the word of God as a lad of 12. When he was 12, Mary and Joseph went to observe the Passover. He made a beeline for where the law was dealt with, the scribes and doctors of the law. And he was there three days, three days debating with them, questioning them, answering them. They couldn't imagine. They were amazed at the answers he gave them, the questions that he asked. And then, as we follow the steps in the gospel account, it stands out very clearly, like in John 8, 26 to 28. He was a mouthpiece for the Father, so that he could say again and again, John 5, 36, John 5, 36, 38, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and the will of him who sent me is that he was under the authority of the Father's word. Again, and I think the reason he repeated that several times, he would expect those who would follow him to be in the same spirit of subjection to him as he was to the Father. The Father's will is expressed in his word. Matthew 12, 46 to 50, look what it says. So they came to him at one occasion and says, your family wants to see him. Who is my mother? Who is my family? And looked at his disciples and says, these are my family. And he says that he that doeth the will of my father is my brother, my sister, my mother. In other words, the most intimate relationship we can have is to do the will of God. And you can't do the will of God unless you're under the authority of the word of God. And the importance of this commitment is seen so, so clearly in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of God, but those who do the will of my Father. We're talking about the word and the will go together. He said, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, uh, look, I've uh, preached the gospel. I've cast out demons. I've done many wonderful works. And then he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Why? Because they would never come under the authority of the Lord, the King of glory. That's the reason. And the will of God is to be under the authority of the King.
when we have to deal with temptation, how do we handle it? Do we let the Word of God take over like Joseph did when uh, Potiphar's wife propositioned herself to him alone? He could have had that into him. Nobody would have known. What does he say? How can I do this wickedness and sin against God? What did our Lord do when he was tempted? Right away, he expounded scripture. It is written, it is written, it is written. And the older I get, the more I love to memorize the word of God because it's the word of God makes me alive. It's clear, it's true. So much was the Lord committed to the Word of God. Did you ever wonder why that account is in about his suffering in Gethsemane? Did you ever wonder why he knew it was decided, the Word of God before the foundation of the world, it was decided, written down, that he would be our suffering substitute? He knew that. Why did he say, if it be possible, may this cup pass from me? I think it's there so that we could see the awful, awful, awful pressure put upon him to know that now he would be made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God to him. I think it was there so that we could see just the terrible suffering that he went through, that he sweated great drops of blood as he was wrestling with this. And then on the cross... He remembered in this great extreme of suffering, he remembered the prophecy of Psalm 69, 21, where it says, I'll try to quote it. In my thirst, they gave me vinegar. That was in Psalm 69, 21. But then in John 19, 28, he says, I thirst, just to fulfill Scripture. That's how devoted he, that's how he was committed to the Word of God. Secondly, oh, one more thing. One more thing. Now, you know, I love Psalm 119. Listen, it's all about the Word of God. Listen to some of these words. So, uh, so I, I'm not going to tell you the verses. I'll just quote Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Psalm 89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven and thy faithfulness extended to all generations. Psalm 103, uh, oh, how sweet are thy words to my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Horror hath taken hold upon me because the wicked forsake thy law. Rivers of water run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. And one more. I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. I can't encourage you enough to memorize the word of God. It is so good. It's, I, I tell you, I've been in bed a lot. <laughs> but I tell you, it's so good that I can just remember the words. Commitment to servanthood. Should no, no one ever exempt my servanthood better than Christ. 
And when the Lord looked down from heaven, as we recorded in Psalm 14 and 53, the same language used, he saw such terrible darkness. And that same darkness is in the world today. That's why one of my favorite expressions is, as far as our nation's current, our nation descending to moral, political, spiritual darkness at an accelerating rate of speed. The day in which we now live is an example of what happens when God is cast out of public life and every area and has affected the church big time. What we see in our time, as Earl Hulsu aptly described in his booklet, Postmodernism, uh, everyone becomes his own authority and it's affecting the church too. We're no longer under the authority of the king. But when we're under the authority of the king, we're zealous for him. And we, well, no moral absolutes. Self is on the throne. Earlier I said the Lord Jesus came to earth to raise up a new race of people for his own ownership over them. And in Matthew 20, 28, he sets an example for his own to follow. I came not into the world to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. As you go through the scripture, it's so easy to see the water glass of his life was completely empty of self. His whole earthly life was one of servitude. In Acts 10, 38, uh, the Father hath anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power. And he went around doing good and delivering those who were oppressed of the devil. The son in his humanity was totally committed to the father to do and represent for us an example of what true commitment is. He was never too weary. He was always ready to give mercy. Never too weary. Never early in the morning. Always ready to give of himself. Isaiah the prophet, the gospel preacher of the Old Testament, pictured Christ as Jehovah's servant. The apostle Paul, writing the church of Philippi, exhorted believers to be imitators of Christ. What they said, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. And then he said, let this mind be in you, which was also, who, uh, who, but was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, took upon himself the form of a servant. And that word that was used in that text, the Greek word is doulos. And it has the idea, uh, it has the idea of altogether consumed in the will of another without rights. In Luke 22, 25 to 27, look at this, just look at, listen to these a few examples. On the night he was betrayed, his disciples were arguing who's going to be the greatest in his kingdom. And what does the Lord do? He doesn't castigate them. He said, brethren, who's the greatest? The one who sits at the table waiting to be served or the one who does the serving? Well, they said the one sitting at the table. You're right but I'm one among you who serves, serves. And then in the upper room in Genesis, in John 13, can you picture the, the Lord of glory and his humanity donning the outfit of a 
a, a bond servant kneeling beside each of his apostles with a towel and with water, washing their feet, drying their feet. Can you ever see such humble servanthood by our Creator and our Redeemer? Philippians 2 8, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I'm afraid we've heard that so many times that we don't get the, we've lost the sense of what he did on the cross. Just a few illustrations. Oh my goodness. Of servanthood. These you don't hear much about. But you remember in Second. Uh, Kings 5, 1, and 3, that uh, they used to, in those days, they used to fight uh, Syria. Uh, they'd take each other's city for a while. Well, jo Naaman, the Syrian general, he uh, went and, and raided a city and took a girl and made her his servant to his wife. Now, naturally, she was taken out, made a captive. You'd think she would be offended. But what did she do? Listen to what she says. Would to God, he, he, when she found out that he had, uh, had uh, leprosy, would to God my Lord were with the prophets in Samaria, for he would recover him from leprosy. And so what she did, she directed Naaman to the prophet Elisha. He was healed. And you know, in the whole history of Elisha, that Gentile uh, Naaman was the only one God healed. And that, I think, is credit to the servanthood of that little girl. In other words, she was faithful to being a servant, not only for the, the, the mistress, but for the Lord. And then what about Dorcas? She was a servant to others, full of good, word, of good works, deeds. Dor Dorcas made clothing for widows, as a ministry, she did not charge them anything, for they would not have wept with such great emotion when at her death they displayed the garments she had made for them. Then the servants ministered to each other and through each other. Matthew 25, 35, 36, you know about that. Uh, I was hungry, and you, and you know that very well. Well, I, as an old sinner, saved grace, many of you ministered to me during these past couple months. But when we minister to each other, we do it as a servant to the Lord. Commit to the Christ's kingdom. In the gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, 14, 15, we are told that after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom, saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And we know there's only way into this kingdom that is a new birth. So in John 3, 38, except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless a man is born again, he cannot Enter the kingdom of God, for that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And that's how we bet. And it's so important that Peter says in 123, he says, For we are born again, not a corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. The church is represented the kingdom of God here on earth. And throughout the gospel accounts, there's at least 15 descriptions of what the kingdom is like here on earth. You know, there's only two kingdoms. Only two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God's dear son. Why Colossians 1, 12, 14 is so precious. 
For thanks be to God who hath made us fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who delivered us from the power of darkness and, deli- and transfer- laid us into the kingdom of God, their Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So precious. And the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus said, Seek ye not, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all those things shall be added to you. Men have always striven to advance the kingdom of men, the kingdom of politics. I get so much mail warning of, the, of this particular agenda that the left, the right, and if you get caught up, it can really dim what is important. We need to remember that the kingdom of this world one day will become the kingdoms of our Christ. Commitment to please God. John 8, 29 says, I always do those things to please God. And John, 1 John 3, 22, and whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things pleasing to God. And when his people obey his word, we please God. Don't children, when they are obedient to their parents, aren't they pleasing to their parents? Of course they are. And he gave us a perfect example. And I... For time's sake, I'm going to have to hasten on. When the Lord Jesus said that he always pleased the Father, could he not also have meant he always reflected the Father? And when we reflect the Lord Jesus, we are pleasing to him. I fear so many times Christians reflect the adversary rather than the Prince of Life. We please God when we follow the instruction of 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink whatsoever you do, do it to the glory of God. And 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, What know you not that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God, and you're not your own, for you're bought with the price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, for we were bought with a price. We're to glorify him. We don't have that right to accept it. No, we've been bought with a price. Our rights have been bought from us. We please God when we are zealous for his honor. That's when he cleansed the temple. He was zealous for God, his honor. He said, my house is a house of prayer, but you made it a den of thieves. And all through the Bible, when you see men that are zealous for the honor of God, you see the Lord pays particular attention to that. And now the suffering. Well, I brought that in. Dear ones, You've heard me speak many times, but Genesis 3.15 will always be current as long as we live. I put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. Yes, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And now we can see that suffering down through. You've heard me speak about the suffering of our blessed Lord, but uh, this is something practical. I just got the voice of martyrs yesterday. Listen to suffering. Keogh came to faith in Christ. His wife and village disowned him and was content to live in a hut by himself. In early 2021, his village authorities tore it down, forcing him to flee and look for help, which came from frontline workers devoted to helping the persecuted. Burkina Faso, Islamic attacks against Christians have risen sharply since 2019, especially in the northern and eastern parts of the country. More than 200 churches have been forced to close. A pastor by the name of Pierre was driven from his pastorate and is safely in another village where he opens his house 
to take care of 16 other refugees. In Chattisgarth State, 84 believers were attacked by a mob of eight, by a mob of 600 Hindus and driven from their homes. And then they had to flee to other villages. An Ethiopian mother had a daughter with a mental disorder, and the sheiks of Islam could not help her, so she went to a Christian church where they prayed and God granted healing. She then realized the Christian faith is a true faith, and she embraced the Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior when she refused to renounce her newfound faith. Her husband beat her. The elders of Islam came down hard upon her. Her husband kicked her out of the house with her uh, daughter, and, and none of her relatives would help her. God provided. These are just four that I just read about. There's terrible suffering. Are we willing to imitate Christ's suffering for what he suffered for us? Because when we're attacked, because they're not attacking, they're attacking Christ. That's whom they hate. Uh, just a few words. Because of time, I've tried to drive home the matter of commitment, but I'd like to give you a Bible verse. Psalm 6, uh, Proverbs 16, 3. Commit your works unto the Lord, and your thoughts shall be established. Many times our thoughts govern by what we do. If we get caught up with politics, if we get caught up with the here and now, the things of the kingdom of God become, become less and less. But if whatever we do, we commit to the Lord. Our thoughts will be established on the way everlasting. And the way everlasting is strength to the upright, but to the destruction to the workers of iniquity. I'm going to close. I, I don't want to close, but I'm going to close. I mean, I have, it's too late. But let me, you remember last week I gave you the booklet, Heavenly Calling? Remember that? Listen to these words. Committing her all. You remember the Bible says in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Psalm 10, 14, the poor commit himself to thee. I'm going to read it very slowly. It's very precious. Those who commit themselves to God have the best and truest friend. The Lord's people are poor, but they are not friendless nor forsaken. They have Jehovah for their God, Jesus Christ the Lord for their Savior, and the Holy Spirit for their comforter and guide. They know God and commit themselves, and they're all to him. But how do they commit themselves to him? As the debtor does, who is taken or dead, as a sick man does to his physician, and as the client does to his lawyer or advocate, as the needy does to his rich and generous friend, as a loving bride to her beloved bridegroom, as a sinner to the Savior. But why do they commit themselves unto him? They commit themselves to his grace to be saved by it, to his power to be kept by it, to his providence 
to be fed by it, to his word, to be ruled by it, to his care, to be preserved by it, to his arms at death, to be safely landed in glory. This commitment flows from grace. It produces peace, safety, deliberately and unreservedly. I want to repeat that. Let us commit ourselves to the Lord daily, heartily, deliberately, and unreservedly. I'm an old, old man, but at my heart, if I can communicate anything to you, is the need if the hour is late, the Lord soon coming back. Let us be devoted to really commit ourselves to his lordship. Please, let us commit ourselves to be completely committed to his lordship and his gospel. Almighty, eternal God, have your way in each heart that we might be to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen.